Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Our journalism is powered by you, not by any corporation or government. That means we count on your support to produce our daily news hour. Please make your donation of $5 or $10 or more at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! The unnecessary and disproportionate use of force must come to an end. The old methods and the fortress mentality of those who wield power simply don't work. In fact, they only aggravate the situation. We are now in a full-fledged human rights crisis. Iran is intensifying its crackdown on protesters after nationwide demonstrations erupted in September. More than 14,000 people have been arrested. Iran's executed at least two arrested during the protests. We'll speak to the Iranian women's rights activist Susan Tamasebi. Then to the World Cup. Qatar is facing accusations it's tortured a World Cup whistleblower, Abdullah Abhais, who's been jailed since 2019. FIFA don't have to say anything about what they think about the merits of this case, but it is absolutely incumbent upon them to specifically demand that this man get a fair trial. Um, and why have they not done that? All they have done to date is say uh, that every person deserves a fair trial. That's a meaningless statement, <laughs> utterly meaningless statement that gets their Catholic partners completely off the hook. We'll speak with the brother of Abdullah Ibhais, as well as the co-founder of the human rights group Fair Square. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Newly installed Peruvian President Dina Baluarte declared a nationwide state of emergency amidst mounting unrest following last week's ouster and imprisonment of then-President Pedro Castillo in what his supporters say was a legislative coup. Protests have spread since his arrest, with at least six people killed in the southern Andes region. Baluarte's government sent troops to Peru's second-largest city, Arequipa, Wednesday. Castillo's supporters rallied in front of his jail in the capital, Lima. Today marks the seventh day of his preliminary detention. He should have been released at 1.30 p.m., but yesterday at midnight, the prosecutor asked for 18 months of preliminary detention. Right now, the president has no lawyers. We need international help. Please. The leaders of Mexico, Colombia, Argentina and Bolivia have voiced support for Castillo, calling him a victim of anti-democratic harassment in a joint statement. The U.S. Federal Reserve has raised interest rates by one-half a percentage point and signaled it may continue lifting rates through the first half of next year. On Wednesday, Fed Chair Jerome Powell said the higher cost of borrowing would slow the economy and lower the rate of inflation. We are taking forceful steps to moderate demand so that it comes into better alignment with supply. 
Our overarching focus is using our tools to bring inflation back down to our 2% goal and to keep longer-term inflation expectations well anchored. Reducing inflation is likely to require a sustained period of below-trend growth and some softening of labor market conditions. Former Labor Secretary Robert Reich said the Fed's move risked plunging the U.S. economy into recession and throwing millions of people out of work. He noted U.S. prices have outpaced wage gains over the last year, diminishing the real purchasing power of workers. Reich added, quote, this is absolutely not the time for more interest rate hikes. That makes it even harder for working people to keep the lights on, he said. The Biden administration says it'll make at-home COVID-19 tests available for free again this winter amidst a steep rise in COVID cases. Beginning today, U.S. residents can once again order four COVID tests per person through the U.S. Postal Service. The program was paused in September after Congress failed to approve a new round of COVID relief funding requested by the White House. Over the past two weeks, U.S. coronavirus hospitalizations have risen more than 20 percent. Deaths have surged by 65 percent, with more than 3,000 people dying of COVID each week. Much of the latest surge has been caused by two Omicron subvariants that have evolved into bypass immune defenses. Researchers stress most people who are up to date on their vaccines are still highly protected against severe disease. Russian officials said Wednesday they have no plans to impose a ceasefire in Ukraine over the Christmas holiday after nearly 10 months of war. Overnight, Ukraine's military launched a massive artillery attack on the Russian-controlled city of Donetsk. Ukraine also took credit for a drone attack on an airbase about 50 miles inside Russian territory. Elsewhere, at least two people were killed by heavy Russian artillery fire in Kherson, where Russian attacks on the power grid have left residents without electricity. The continued fighting came, as the Pentagon said, it would more than double the number of Ukrainian troops at its training program in Germany. Also on Wednesday, a U.S. citizen was freed as part of a prisoner swap between Russia and Ukraine. Suedi Murkezi had been held since his arrest by Russian forces in Kherson in June. Meanwhile, CNN is reporting Russia refused to release U.S. prisoner Paul Whelan alongside Brittany Griner last week unless a former colonel from Russia's domestic spy organization currently in German custody was also released. Vadim Krasikov is serving a life sentence in Germany after he was convicted of assassinating a Georgian citizen in broad daylight in Berlin in 2019. His victim, Zelimkhan Kangoshvili, was a Chechen separatist commander who fought against Russian forces in the early 2000s. The International Federation of Journalists says Ukraine was the deadliest country for journalists over the past year. The IFJ says at least 67 media workers were killed so far around the world in 2022, 20 more than the previous year. The group also cited Haiti and Mexico as some of the deadliest zones for reporting. Here in the United States, Republican Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton blocked the Senate passage of a bipartisan bill designed to protect free press by not allowing the government to legally compel journalists to disclose their sources. 
Democratic Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon, who co-sponsored the Press Act, highlighted the bill's inclusion of exceptions in cases of immediate threats of violence or death, as well as its unanimous passage in the House. In Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu is one step closer to forming his new government after a preliminary vote Tuesday, which would allow for the appointment of ministers who are convicted criminals. If fully approved, the legislation would allow Netanyahu to make good on his pledge to ultra-Orthodox leader Arya Dere to head the Interior and Health Ministries, despite being convicted of tax fraud. Netanyahu is granted an extended deadline of December 21st to form his administration, set to be the most extreme far right in Israeli history. In Nigeria, dozens of eyewitnesses say they saw soldiers in the Nigerian army massacring children in its 13-year war against Boko Haram insurgents, with estimates putting the number of dead in the thousands. An investigation by Reuters found Nigerian army commanders repeatedly ordered soldiers and armed guards to, quote, delete children, because they were assumed to be collaborating with militants in Boko Haram or its Islamic State offshoot. This is a soldier interviewed by Reuters. His face has been obscured, his voice replaced to protect his identity. Yes, at times when we come into a place and we find children and adults, we kill them all, shoot them all. We don't differentiate and say, this is a child and this is an adult, because they're all together. At times, if you kill the adult, the child will become a problem. Another Reuters investigation found since 2013, a secret Nigerian military program coerced at least 10,000 women and girls to terminate their pregnancies after they were kidnapped and raped by members of Boko Haram. The United Nations has called on Nigerian authorities to fully investigate the charges. World Health Organization Director General Tedros Adhanom Ghebreyesus said his uncle was killed by Eritrean troops amidst ongoing fighting in Ethiopia's northern Tigray region. He made the revelation at the end of a COVID briefing on Wednesday. I spoke to my mother and she was really devastated because he was the youngest from their family and he was almost the same age with me and he was not alone by the way. Uh, in the village, when they killed him in his home uh, from same village, uh, more than 50 people were killed. Last month, Ethiopia's government and Tigrayan representatives agreed to a peace deal after two years of war, but Eritrean forces were not part of that agreement. Meta has been sued by two Ethiopian researchers and a Kenyan rights group for allowing Facebook posts inciting violence in the Tigray War to proliferate on the site. One of the plaintiffs says his father, an Ethiopian academic, was the subject of racist attacks online before his murder in November of 2021, and that Facebook, owned by Meta, had refused to remove the violent posts. This is Kenyan lawyer Mercy Mutemi who filed the lawsuit. The case my clients have made is that not only do Facebook allow such content to be on the platform, they prioritize it and they make money from such content. Why are they allowed to do that? The lawsuit is seeking $1.6 billion from Meta to establish a fund for victims of online hate and violence. 
In other social media news, Twitter has disbanded its Trust and Safety Council, an external group made up of civil rights organizations, academics and others, that advise Twitter on matters related to user safety, including mental health, human rights, suicide prevention and child sexual exploitation. Separately, Twitter suspended the account of at Elon Jet, which tracked the movements of Twitter owner Elon Musk's private jet. Musk previously vowed not to block the account. And in California, a San Francisco police detective said Wednesday the man charged with assaulting House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband also planned to target California Governor Gavin Newsom, President Biden's son Hunter Biden, and actor Tom Hanks. The testimony came during the trial of David DePap, who's accused of breaking into Pelosi's home and assaulting Paul Pelosi with a hammer in front of police. He faces up to 30 years in prison on a federal assault charge and up to 20 additional years for attempted kidnapping. On Wednesday, prosecutors played video of the assault on Paul Pelosi, along with the 911 call he made and police body camera footage. This is San Francisco District Attorney Brooke Jenkins. This sends a strong message, this case in general, and just the facts of what happened, send a clear message to the country that things have gone too far and that we must tone down our rhetoric, especially as political leaders. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. When we come back, we speak to an Iranian human rights activist about what's happening in Iran. Stay with us. Activist Mohsen Shakari singing at the Tehran cafe he worked at with friends. Last week, the 23-year-old Shakari became the first person executed for taking part in nationwide anti-government protests sparked by the killing of Masa Amini. For those who are listening on the radio or just reading this, you can go to democracynow.org to see the video. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman, joined by Democracy Now!'s Nermeen Sheikh. Hi, Nermeen. Hi, Amy, and welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. 
Well, Iran has been expelled from the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women after a campaign led by the United States. This comes as human rights groups are expressing growing alarm over Iran's crackdown on protests that began mid-September, sparked by the death of the Kurdish-Iranian the Kurdish woman, 22-year-old Masa Amini, in the custody of Iran's so-called morality police. The human rights activist news agency reports over 18,000 people have been arrested across Iran since the protests began. Tehran's prosecutor general has said 400 people have been sentenced to up to 10 years in prison. The 26-year-old Iranian pro-soccer player Amir Nasser Azadani has reportedly been sentenced to death for his involvement in the demonstrations. FIFPRO, the global soccer players union, said it was shocked and sickened that Nasser Azadani faces execution. On Monday, Iranian authorities publicly executed 23-year-old Majadreza Ranavard. He was hanged from a metal crane with his hands and feet bound in a black bag over his head. He was convicted of killing two members of paramilitary forces in a secretive trial where he wasn't allowed to choose his own lawyer or challenge the evidence against him. When his mother visited him, he was reportedly not notified he'd be executed soon after. He's the second person executed in Iran linked to the recent anti-government protests. Four days before he was hanged, 23-year-old Mohsen Shakari was executed after being convicted of, quote, waging war against God. We're joined right now by Susan Tamasebi. She's a women's rights activist and a feminist from Iran who's joining us from Brussels, Belgium. She's the director of Femina, an organization that promotes gender equality and supports women human rights defenders. Sasan Tamasebi also co-founded the Iran Civil Society Training and Research Center, as well as the One Million Signatures Campaign, a grassroots effort working to end gender-biased laws in Iran. She herself was summoned to court in Iran in 2007 due to her organizing a peaceful gathering against gender discriminatory laws. Susan Tamasebi, welcome to Democracy Now! There's so much to talk about. Um, we are now reporting one execution after another of the anti-government protesters. Can you talk about what's happening on the ground in Iran? Yes, thank you for having me, and thank you very much for paying attention to, to Iran and what's happening inside Iran. As you explained, these protests have now been going on for over three months. They were sparked by the death in custody of Mahsa Gina Amini, a young 22-year-old Kurdish woman who was arrested by the morality police for not observing proper hijab, and she died in custody. I mean, she was uh, beaten in custody, according to reports, moved to hospital and died there a few days later, and protests erupted um, in response to that death because people were so angry at the senselessness of her death. And I think many women could understand what she went through because they lived their lives in fear of being arrested by the morality police. And I think people were also very angry by the lack, the, you know, the lack of accountability on the part of Iranian authorities and the impunity with which they kill Iranians so easily. These protests are extremely significant because it's, they're their longest sustained protests since the start of the revolution, since 43 years ago. 
Um, but we've had many protests in between, and uh, protesters have been killed during those protests as well in 2017, 2019, which was an extremely bloody protest, according to some accounts, 1,500 people. I think Amnesty International has 300 and some documented deaths uh, due to the protests. But 15, some accounts also say that it's 1,500 people were killed. So people are very angry at this crisis of impunity inside Iran. And these protests over the last three months have been dealt with very violently as well. Over um, nearly 500 people have been killed, 480, I think, is the last figure that the Human Rights uh, Activist Network reported. 68 of them are children um, who've been killed. And um, the majority of those who've been killed, I mean, at least 50 percent of those who've been killed are from ethnic minority regions, Kurdish areas and Baluchi areas. In Baluchistan, just in one day, on um, Black Friday, which was September 30th, 103 people were shot dead. These were peaceful uh, protesters leaving Friday prayers, and most of them were shot in the back, running away from gullet, from bullet, bullets that the police were shooting at them. Now, as you mentioned, the violence has reached a new level where protesters are being sentenced to death. They're being charged with enmity with God or waging war against God, and they're being sentenced to death. Um, in these sham trials that, you know, don't take very long, where people are not afforded, allowed to have access to their lawyers. And it's extremely concerning. Susan, you mentioned uh, the brutal crackdown in particular against uh, uh, minorities in Iran. Could you explain why uh, uh, the crackdown has been especially uh, bad in these uh, uh, minority areas? Those aren't the areas where protests have even been concentrated, or are they? Well, I should, I should state before I explain this that these protests are not sectarian in nature. They're national protests, and they involve uh, women um, and a lot of young people, teenagers, uh, Iranians in their 20s, who are sick of the status quo. They want fundamental change. They're asking for fundamental freedoms. Many of them are also asking for regime change. Um, but the, unfortunately, the Iranian state decided to um, take a sectarian approach to the crushing of the protests, because if they um, treat the protests as if they're uh, being uh, fomented by separatist movements, then it becomes easier for them to crack down and use violence. But fortunately, I think the Iranians are were smarter than that to buy into this into this uh, plan, the security plan that they had. I should mention that Gina Mahsa Amini was Kurdish. So one of the first places um, that where protests started was, was in her home city, Saqqaz, during her burial and many other Kurdish cities. The political groups, the political Kurdish groups, many of them in Iraqi Kurdistan, called for general strikes. So the Kurdish area has played a significant role in sustaining these protests. And many of the Kurdish cities have continuously protested. They've also been faced a lot of violence. Javanrud, Mahabad, Saqqiz, Sanandaj, all of these cities have faced a lot of violence. And many of these cities have been turned into war zones where you see war artillery moved to these cities and people being shot down. And roads to these cities have also been closed off. So people are wanting to go to these cities to provide medical support uh, to citizens there or to for blood drives are prevented from going to those cities if their tags are from a different city. So even if you live there and your tags are from a different city, you're not allowed to go to those cities. 
So Kurdish areas, for the, one of the main reasons is for this area, because of the sustained protests. But the Baluchi um, uh, region also has faced a significant crackdown. And again, it was part of this ploy by the Iranian security agencies to make this look like a separatist movement. So on September 30th, following the death of Masa Amini protests, I mean, uh, Friday prayer growers in Zahedan were very angry, both because of what happened nationally, but also because they were upset uh, because of an alleged rape of a young 15-year-old girl by a security, by police in a city in, in Baluchistan. And they started marching towards the police station to ask for accountability. And in just one hour, 103 of these prayer goers, protesters, whatever you want to call them, peaceful, unarmed, were shot and killed. And um, in one hour, most of them were shot in the back, meaning that they were running away from the police stations, running away from the bullets. And then subsequent protests across Baluchistan, we've had more killings. So about 50% of all the people who've been killed are either, you know, with, are from Baluchi and Kurdish area. So this is significant, despite the fact that this is not a sectarian protest, but the bulk of the violence has been directed at these groups. Susan, you mentioned, uh, as we did, uh, that now two uh, prisoners, uh, people charged with participation in the protests, uh, although that's not what they've been convicted of, uh, have now been publicly executed. Uh, and this is in addition, of course, what you're, you're talking about, protesters who've been killed during the protests. Could you explain why you think Iran is now publicly executing uh, these prisoners? It's been a long while since a public execution was carried out, even though Iran is among the countries with the highest uh, rates of uh, imposing the death penalty, second only uh, to China. Yeah, well, I think that this has two messages. One is to instill fear among protesters that this could be your fate. It's not that you just go to prison, but you could get killed. And the second message is to send a message to um, the security forces who've carried out the bulk of these crackdowns that we are with you. And if, you know, if there are people who are accused of killing or um, uh, engaging in violent behavior against the security forces, against the Basij militia, against the IRGC, we're going to make them suffer and we're going to make them pay. I have to say that, you know, the, it's only one, it's only the second uh, protester, Majid Jazarah Navad, who was hanged publicly. The first one wasn't hanged publicly, um, who was uh, Mohsen Shekari. Both of them were 23-year-olds. And Mohsen Shekari was uh, charged with shutting down the street preventing from traffic from moving. So it's, you know, it's really um, didn't cause any harm to anybody. This is according to what he was charged with, which is a source of, you know, concern and question for human rights observers or for those who are observing the judicial process. But nevertheless, even according to Islamic Republic of Iran, he wasn't charged with killing or creating any sort of bodily injury or harm to anyone. But still, he was charged as a um, uh, as somebody who's waging war against God. And there's been a lot of uh, criticism of this, including from religious leaders or um, uh, legal experts who say that even according to their own laws, this is this is wrong. But nevertheless, he was he was both of them were arrested, tried, sentenced and executed in a matter of a few weeks. And the head of the judiciary a couple, I guess, about a week ago, 
mentioned that very proudly that they have um, conducted these trials very quickly. And we see that they have conducted these trials very quickly because they don't meet any standard of fair trial practice. Most importantly is that most of these prisoners and people standing for trial, these protesters, don't have access to a lawyer of their choice. They're At best, they're given a court-appointed lawyer. And these court-appointed lawyers are people who formerly, most of them had worked within the judiciary, and they're not going to serve the best interest of their clients. They're going to serve the best interest of um, the state and the judiciary. And many of them, we think, are pressured, uh, tortured, uh, uh, psychologically or physically and, and forced into false confessions. Um, so it's it's really very concerning that there is no due process and it's certainly not justice. Uh, Susan, I wanted to ask you also about the 26-year-old uh, Iranian soccer player uh, named Amr Nasser Hazadani, who's reportedly been sentenced to death also for his involvement in the demonstrations. Uh, you have the Global Soccer Players Union, FIFPRO, tweeting, FIFPRO is shocked and sickened by reports that professional footballer Amir Nasser Hazadani faces execution in Iran after campaigning for women's rights and basic freedom in his country. We stand in solidarity with Amr and call for the immediate removal um, of his punishment. If you could talk about him and also the entire Iranian soccer team—I don't know if it was every one of them—who refused to sing the Iranian national anthem um, at the FIFA World Cup in Qatar. Sure. So I don't know if—I don't have—I have a list of 10 people who have been sentenced to execution. Uh, Azadani is not on that list. This, I just, you know, and I'm following the list of Follow Up Iran, which is a group of volunteer activists who are documenting either, you know, through uh, contact with lawyers, family members, human rights activists inside the country, um, uh, what's happening to prisoners uh, inside the country. And they've managed to document 10 sentences uh that have been issued, 10 sentences, execution sentences that have been issued. But it doesn't mean that he's not or he doesn't face, you know, potential execution. There are scores of other people who are facing charges of enmity with God and also waging war against God, both of which carry the death sentence. And this could be for acts of violence, you know, charges of acts of violence or, you know, shutting down streets or um, uh, assumptions about the fact that they had violent intent. So it's not really, if they're charged with this, it doesn't necessarily mean that they committed a crime. Unfortunately, there's no, there's very little trust in the judicial system. So I don't have his name on there. And I think it's important for us to make sure that um, we talk about uh uh, the deaths, especially the death sentences, when they're verified, but it doesn't, but does it doesn't mean that he he might not be facing the death sentence. So I, but I can't speak to it because I don't have that information, and I don't have that information from this particular source that I'm following on the executions. Um, I think you know you asked about the soccer players. Yes, so the soccer players and many other athletes have uh, expressed solidarity with the Iranian people. And they face repercussions when they go back uh, to their countries. So this is, you know, this is this is a, 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 a trend. I think the Islamic Republic um, is doing is sort of cracking down on these protests very violently. It's doing things that 
it finds itself it finds very difficult to defend so it's forcing people to uh, uh, and trying to prevent them from speaking up about it. It's arresting people, it's pressuring, putting them under pressure, but it's also providing a lot of false narratives as to what it's done and how it's done. So, it, you know, if they kill people, um, they bring uh, actors on TV or they fo force the family members of uh, people who've been killed to come on TV to deny the facts. So um, I think they know what they're doing is very wrong, but unfortunately they continue to do it. Speaking of sports, but of course, it's not just sports news. The Iranian rock climber, uh, Elnaz Rahabi, um, who uh, climbed in South Korea without her hijab, uh, comes home supposedly to a welcome, but then we recently heard that her home was destroyed. What do you understand about that and also what's happened to her? Yes, yeah, so there was a lot of speculation about what happened with her after that very brave act of defiance. Um, in the competitions in Seoul, um, people didn't know where she was. So there was a lot of speculation where, of where she was. And when she came to, to Iran in the airport, she was escorted away from the crowds that had come to cheer her in support of her. And we heard news that her family was under a lot of pressure, um, that she was under a lot of pressure. So I, I, I believe it's probably very true uh, that and also what we hear is that um, athletes, before they leave the country, they have to put up uh, a sum of money um, to be able to leave the country. I don't know how true it is. It makes it makes sense. But it's, it becomes a leverage point against those athletes, what they say, what they do, how they behave. And, you know, forcing them to come back in circumstances like in Nazir Kabi's circumstances. Suzanne, uh, what has been, uh, I mean, apart, of course, from these uh, horrific executions and uh, arrests and deaths, uh, there have been some reports that the Iranian government is uh, somehow responding also positively to the protests, Iran's attorney general having announced that both parliament and the judiciary are reviewing the hijab laws, uh, some people uh, reporting that the so-called morality police are less visible now on the streets. Do you think any of this is important? Actually, I don't think any of it is true. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. I think people were expecting, and maybe it would have been logical for them to really review um, these uh, horrific policies, these very violent policies of enforcing women, you know, enforcing a particular dress code on women, policing women's bodies. Um, but and there was some news about I think there was a, um, a, a press conference by a judiciary uh, official who mentioned something about how this this is an issue. The morality police has to do with the police, not the judiciary. And people took that as if the morality police uh, was going to be dismantled. But then we immediately heard uh, other accounts from other um, sources within the Iranian government that denied that. Unfortunately, the Iranian state has dismantled every possible opportunity and a mechanism to uh, create reform or to respond to the demands of the Iranian people. Um, you know, Iranians voted uh, multiple times for over two decades for some process of reform or some hope of reform. 
but uh, the state has not has not um, given into those demands and has not allowed for any form of reform. And I think that this is the result. What we're seeing now is the result because these extreme hardliners have a very different vision for the future of Iran and the future of Iranians than Iranians themselves. And there's there seems to be no process of negotiation, unfortunately. They're not engaging in any kind of negotiation and they're not backing down at all. And it's, you know, I think it's unfortunate. Some, something has to give. And it seems that, you know, and, and I think Iranians are continuing to stay in the streets. They're still very angry. So we'll have to see how things turn Suzanne, out. But I, there's, I wanted to ask yeah. you about um, Iran being ousted from the United Nations Commission on the Status of Women, the move initiated by the U.S., of course, in response to Tehran's crackdown on the recent protests, the vote 29 to 8, with 16 nations abstaining. This is the U.S. ambassador to the U.N., Linda Thomas-Greenfield. These women and activists have appealed to us, the United Nations, for support. They made their request to us loud and clear, remove Iran from the Commission on the Status of Women. The reason why is straightforward. The Commission is the premier UN body for promoting gender equality and empowering women. It cannot do its important work if it's being undermined from within. Iran's membership at this moment is an ugly stain on the Commission's credibility. So that's the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. Uh, talking about Iran being ousted from the U.N. Commission on the Status of Women. Um, talk about the response to the U.S. pushing so hard for this. You know, we're also covering the um, Africa summit that has taken place for three days in Washington, D.C. Biden just addressed them yesterday. Um, but the concern of uh, the U.S. talking down to other countries and the see being seen as a Western push. I mean, when you look at what's happening around, clearly coming from the grassroots, but what this means with the U.S. so clearly pushing for their removal. Well, I want to say that the removal of Iran is 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 a, a positive signal to the Iranian people that the U.N. is going to hold Iran accountable for not only violations that are going on um, during these protests for violations against women's rights and long-standing discrimination against women, or at least it's going to try to hold Iran accountable. Um, it's a, you know, and I, so I think in that sense, it's a very positive thing. And I hope that it means that the UN will take a stand against any country, not just Iran, but any country, because there are multiple countries that actually consistently violate not only the rights of citizens, but also the rights of women, that they have deep, deep discrimination embedded within their laws and within their implementation of policies. And they should have no place on the Commission on the Status of Women, which is supposed to be the place where women's empowerment happens within the U.S. And I have to say, the Commission on the Status of Women meets yearly, and it's a great place for civil society and government planners to come together and uh, network and strategize about women's rights. But it's also a largely ineffective body because it's overrun or uh, uh, largely by these anti-rights actors. Some of them are countries like Iran, Saudi Arabia, Russia, the Vatican, um, that really have uh, um, uh, a disdain for women's advancement and women's rights. And they see women in a particular, very patriarchal frame. And they have been pushing back on all of rights. So 
at the end of the two-week session where the, these people come together, plan, policymakers and, and civil society also, there's a resolution, but it's not a binding resolution. And every year there's fighting over the language because they're afraid of losing ground on the language. Because if they lose ground on the language, then they're going to lose real rights in the Human Rights Council. So I hope that this is not only a measure against Iran, which I think I welcome that because it sends a strong message to Iran and to Iranians, but I hope it's a message to all anti-rights actors within the UN system um, that push back on women's rights, that, that you know, those people who, or those groups who believe in women's advancement are going to come in and take over this body and not allow anti-rights actors to be pushing their anti-women's agenda in, in, in places like the Commission on the Status of Women. So I think the U.S. leading it, um, I think some people had problems with it. Uh, from We're hearing from back channels, um, uh, there was some nervousness about Europe coming on board, but Europe did come on board. And we see that the global South largely has uh, either abstained or voted against the measure. We hope that the global South will step up and support Iranians for their quest for freedom and uh, hold Iran accountable for the violations of rights, not only of protesters, but longstanding violation of women's rights. Suzanne, could you, uh, before we end, talk about what you think uh, the global response should be uh, from the global south, but also from the EU uh, and the U.S.? You'd previously been extremely critical, for instance, about sanctions on Iran, saying that they harm women in particular. Uh, but earlier this month, the, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee approved a bipartisan resolution reaffirming U.S. support for Iranian protesters and calling on the Biden administration to impose additional sanctions on Iranian officials and entities. The U EU and Britain have taken similar steps, and many Iranians in the diaspora are supporting these steps, even those who previously opposed sanctions. What are you hearing about what protesters— in Iran are calling for from the international community? Well, I think the international community needs to act in a coordinated manner um, to press Iran through whatever means it can to stop the executions. We now have, you know, 10 people who've been sentenced to execution that we know for sure, possibly more than that, and then many, many more who could potentially face execution. So this is, I think this needs to be top priority through whatever diplomatic channels or whatever pressure means to stop the executions of peaceful protesters um, and to uh, respect the rights further to release the protesters, release the scores and scores of human rights defenders, including nearly 170 women human rights defenders that we've documented who've been uh, imprisoned since the start of the protests. I think in terms of um, sanctions, yes, I have consistently been opposed to uh, economic sanctions because I think that they're broad, they're they, they, they're indiscriminate. They ta target and harm ordinary citizens, especially marginalized communities the most. I'm not opposed to targeted sanctions on individuals for human rights violations. I think that's great that, that we should see more of that. But I think in terms of if there's entities that are being sanctioned, that there should be a harm assessment done before those sanctions are implemented to see if the sanctions are going to harm Iranians, if it's going to harm their access to the Internet, for example, or if it's going to harm their 
their ability to continue with their protests or their their freedoms in some way. Uh, Canada Canada did uh, sanctions against heads of the IRGC, which is which is fine because before the U.S. did sanctions against IRGC that included eleven thousand ordinary people who had to serve military service. So there hadn't been a harm analysis, and I think that harm analysis is really important with respect to sanctions. Susan Thomasovi, we want to thank you for being with us, women's rights activist, feminist from Iran, director of Femina, an organization that promotes gender and equality and supports women's rights defenders, speaking to us from Brussels. Coming up, Qatar is facing accusations. It's torturing an imprisoned World Cup whistleblower. We'll speak with his brother back in 30 seconds. We will sing one song. Joe Hills, We Will Sing One Song, performed by Jeremy Hammond. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. As France and Argentina prepare to face off Sunday in the World Cup finals in Qatar, we end today's show looking at the case of imprisoned World Cup whistleblower Abdullah Ibhais. He is the former communications director for Qatar's 2022 World Cup organizers, the Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy. He's been imprisoned in Qatar since November 2019. His family says he's been held in solitary confinement and tortured in a Qatari prison. In 2021, Abdullah Ibhais was sentenced to five years in prison on what his family says are trumped-up charges after he interviewed migrant workers who'd gone on strike over months of unpaid wages, including workers building stadiums for the games. His sentence was later reduced to three years. Abdullah Ibhais' family has blasted the FIFA Soccer Federation, calling it complicit in Abdullah's imprisonment. We're joined now by Abdullah's brother, Ziad Abhais, and Nick McGeehan, co-director and co-founder of the human rights organization Fair Square, where he advocates for migrant workers. He was previously a senior researcher at Human Rights Watch. Nick is joining us from Nice, France. Ziad is joining us from Amman, Jordan. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Ziad, let's begin with you. Tell us about what happened to your brother, Abdullah. Talk about um, his interviewing workers, um, uh, videoing uh, what their conditions in Qatar, and what happened. Thank you, Amy. It all started on the 4th of August 2019, when uh, uh, workers, migrant workers took, took to the streets of Doha because of the delayed payments. And, you know, this is not a choice people would go for, as would, would opt for in, 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 in Doha. So they were desperate. They were four months not paid. They had nothing uh, to sustain them. So they went on the streets. Uh, it, of course, it came to the concern of the Supreme Committee, and they started talking about that. Uh, Abdullah felt uh, uh, skeptical about what is being said by uh, his fellows in the Department of, uh, of, of, of Workers' Welfare and wanted to check by himself. 
So he went to he went to the uh, to the strike scene, and there he met with workers. He found that there is no electricity in the camp. It was in the middle of of, of Doha summer. Uh, it was in fourth of, of 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 August. He found them without enough food, without uh, drinking water, and uh, four months not paid. Almost 200 workers were wor- were working in the stadiums of the educational city and uh, Al Bayt Stadium. So uh, uh, he went back to his superiors and he sent these uh, videos and recordings to them to confirm that the situation is not fixed. He was asked by the Supreme Committee uh, Secretary General Hassan al-Dawadi to put up a statement to deny that these people were working in the stadiums of the World Cup. After this, uh, after going on site, Abdullah said, we can never deny this. It's better for us to admit this, to fix it, and then to say that we have fixed this situation, we have paid these wages to the workers. Uh, uh, Hassan Dawadi thought other, otherwise, however, uh, they insisted on uh, what he called putting a spin on it, putting a narrative on it, and saying that this has nothing to do with the Supreme Committee. After that, one month later, an internal investigation started against Abdullah, and uh, then it was handled to the authorities. This investigation raised up uh, very serious uh, uh, allegations against Abdullah that he was conspiring with a Saudi partner to put uh, the social media of the World Cup in the hands of, of what, what Qatar at that time used to call the blockade states uh, and, and, uh, and for taking a bribe in return of awarding the tender for a Turkish company. So this was raised the concern in, in the police and he, Abdullah was sent to state security police. He was denied uh, uh, the right to see a lawyer. He was interrogated without a lawyer. And actually, all the interrogation was about to make him sign a ready-made confession. He was not asked what happened. They told him, we know what you did. All what you have to keep your safety is to sign this. He was threatened with six months imprisonment without seeing his family or a lawyer. He was threatened with physical violence and torture. And if he didn't sign, he was told that we will send you to state security prison where they know well how to get a confession out of you. So Abdullah broke and uh, signed this confession. Uh, After that, uh, 35 days later, he was released on bail. Uh, The case stayed for one year uh, untouched. During that one year, he was denied any information to the case. He didn't know what he's accused of. We didn't know what is the case against Abdullah. After that, it went to three levels of court. All three levels of court refused to look into Abdullah's retraction of the confession. They refused to to investigate this confession. They refused to force the Supreme Committee to present the claimed evidence. Supreme Committee claimed that they had uh, recordings and uh, videos of Abdullah uh, conspiring with uh, this Saudi guy, but they never presented them in court. It was presented. It it was never seen or checked. So uh, all three courts maintained that they hold to the confession, uh, even if Abdullah retracted it. It was not supported by any kind of physical evidence. And uh, the third uh, court, which took the case, which chose to take take the case on the 7th of of November, as the World Cup opening was approaching, Abdullah did not attend. His lawyer did not attend. We were not informed that there is a hearing. All the way, Abdullah got the chance in the three courts to, to, to defend himself for five minutes, all the chance that his lawyer got in the three courts 
is five minutes to present his case. And all the time uh, he was silenced. So basically, this is a legal facade to uh, to a political decision that Abdullah should be silenced and remain in prison. Nick McGeehan, could you uh, explain how FIFA is directly implicated in what's happened to Abdullah and also how his case was brought to your attention, the attention of your organization, uh, Fair Square? Yeah, I mean, FIFA is is very heavily implicated in this. As as Ziad explained, it's FIFA's partners in Qatar, the Supreme Committee, who submitted this police report to the Qatari authorities that ultimately put Abdullah in harm's way. Um, It's very clear from the evidence and the analysis of the the case documents and the judgments that he was subjected to a deeply unfair trial. There's no evidence against him other than this confession that Ziad discussed. Uh, and so uh, Human Rights Watch and Fair Square were two of the organisations who, who pressed FIFA to demand that Abdullah get a fair trial. Not, not that they say he should be released, but just that he get a fair trial. And FIFA hasn't done that, um, which just seems like an appalling abdication of responsibility on their part. In terms of um, how the case came to, to our attention, Abdullah emailed a lot of people about the case, I believe it was September 2021, um, I remember immediately getting back in touch with him and, and having a phone call with him. And what was remarkable about Abdullah's story wasn't just the allegations he had to make, which were explosive, obviously, but the fact that he had so much evidence to support them. What's interesting about this case is there are two versions of events. There's the Abdullah's version of events. I'm the victim of a malicious prosecution based on what I did within the Supreme Committee. He provided a lot of evidence to back that up. Um, and then there's the Cassidy version of events. He's guilty of bribery. Um, in, in, in relation to some sort of tender, and there's just no evidence to, to back that up, and they haven't produced any. And what are you demanding from the Qatari government? Have you received any response from them at all? No, not really. What you, what you find with the Supreme Committee, which is the World Cup organisers, is they do a lot of briefing behind the scenes. So whoever's interested in this story, journalists typically, uh, they'll be on the phone to them, talking to them. Um, but the Qatari authorities tend not to respond uh, to direct communication, and there's been no direct communication here. The private briefings are all to the effect that Abdullah's guilty, Abdullah's not to be trusted, Abdullah was no friend of migrant workers, and there's evidence to um, to support these allegations. But when you look at the, the court judgment, or when you ask anyone to provide some evidence um, to support you know, the allegations against them, then you find that there, there is none. What evidence do you have, um, Ziad or Nick, um, that Abdullah is being tortured? And Ziad, when did you last speak to him? And what has been the response of um, of the countries that are involved with uh, the FIFA soccer? I mean, responding to what's happening to him right there in Qatar. I last spoke to Abdullah on the 5th of December when I knew the uh, circumstances of his uh, solitary confinement. He told me that he was put in solitary confinement on the 2nd of November as the World Cup approached. And uh, he was, uh, the solitary confinement was all dark and uh, the central conditioning of, of the prison was directed against him. He was sleep deprived for 96 hours continuously. So it, it happened after, after the uh, verdict took place, even before the last verdict. So uh, if he's serving his time in prison, What's the need for, for this kind of torture if he's not to be silenced? Directly after he was taken out of uh, solitary confinement, his case the next day was sent to, uh, to the court of cassation without, without uh, a notice, a prior notice. 
So it, it's clear that there is an, an intention to deprive Abdullah from preparing his defense, to, de- to deprive him from being in court and deprive his lawyer from being in court. And, and these are they they are th- these things these developments stand for the, themselves and speak for themselves. Actually, we tried to reach out to many uh, countries participating or we thought will be participating in the World Cup. Uh, most of them did not take Abdullah's case uh, seriously. Uh, uh, there was a little uh, concern about uh, his case or about uh, migrant workers, to my understanding. Uh, the concern was is that tournament, the tournament has to take place. So uh, we almost got no replies except from uh, some federations like Australia and uh, Norway at certain point. These are the only uh, answers we got from countries. Other than that, it was uh, uh, it was uh, two Norwegian journalists who were detained when they came to see Abdullah uh, on the 15th of November 2021. Uh, this uh, brought uh, the government of, of Norway on, on into the case, and uh, after the detention of the two uh, journalists, and uh, they were deported from the country, actually, uh, uh, the, the uh, Norway government uh, summoned the uh, Qatari ambassador uh, in Norway. Um, I want to play a clip of a short documentary released by Human Rights Watch featuring migrant workers and their families from Nepal demanding compensation for the abuses and sudden deaths while building and preparing for this year's World Cup in Qatar. This is Hadi, a former um, migrant worker in Qatar. When I went to Lusail in Qatar, there was nothing. There wasn't even a single building. Now there are towers everywhere. We built those towers. In the heat, we worked out of compulsions with face covers. We were drenched in sweat. We poured water sweat from our shoes. Even in that heat, we worked hard. My son did not recognize me when I first came from Qatar to Nepal. My son's aim is to play football, so I went to watch him play for a little bit. I met my son only five times in the 14 years I was away. I used to cry and feel bad that I had to stay away from children for work. A multi-country investigation by The Guardian reported that between 2010 and 2020, for that decade, almost 6,500 migrant workers from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka have died in Qatar. Um, Nick, I wanted to ask you, as you look overall at this issue, and as the FIFA soccer is going to end on Sunday, no matter who wins, uh, what you think will come of the attention paid to workers' rights in Qatar? Is Qatar changing its policies, not to mention other nations? Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, there is now this awareness of this problem. I mean, I've been working on this issue for nearly 20 years. And, and when I started, nobody really knew about uh, these abuses. No one had heard of the kafala system. Um, and it just wasn't an issue at all. Qatar has changed that. Um, Qatar has become a lightning rod for focus on this issue and criticism of this issue. And that has led to some changes on, on paper, at least. You know, there have been reforms to the kafala system, uh, legal abolition effect, uh, in effect. But sadly, that hasn't really been complemented by the necessary political will to, to make that effective. And as your piece rightly identified, 
you know, it's come a lot far too late for all these families who've lost family members in circumstances that have just not been explained to them. So I tend to look at these tremendous human harms and the appalling impact it's had on on people like the family of the, the man in your piece, uh, and I find it hard to draw particular optimism. Um, Nick, before we, we go, we only have 10 seconds. I want to ask Ziad, has the Jordanian government intervened on your brother's behalf? No, unfortunately, they just uh, visited him once in prison. And after that, they refrained. They never intervened on the case. And when do you expect him to be released? Well, I hope he will be released soon because uh, uh, with this pressure, the Qataris might reach an understanding that Abdullah is becoming a burden and he's in, in prison for nothing wrong he did, only for a political decision. And we, we hope it will be soon. Ziad Abihez, I want to thank you so much for being with us, brother of Abdullah, who's in prison in Qatar for exposing um, worker abuses, and Nick McGeehan, co-director and co-founder of the human rights group Fair Square. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermin Sheikh. <laughs>